Do me a favor and uh, turn with me to the 20th chapter of the book of John. The 20th chapter of the book of John. We are doing a two-part series on why Jesus came. We did Good Friday and we concentrated on the death of Jesus Christ and uh, we went through lots of the trials and all the things that led up to the crucifixion. And now we are doing the second part of that series, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in all four Gospels, there is an account of the morning tomb, the empty tomb on the morning in which uh, Jesus rose again. I'm, hap- or I'm going to happen to uh, have, pick and read to you uh, John chapter 20. Now what's interesting about these Gospels are, are this. You need all four of them to piece together all the things that happened during that morning. That shouldn't trouble you. That should give you great peace. Why do I say that? Well, in uh, uh, the legal world of which I find myself as a lawyer, when we find people who are testifying in an almost uh, exact-like manner, people become suspicious. Judges become suspicious. Juries become suspicious. But when we get people who come from different vantage points, from different time periods, maybe, uh, for instance, if we're looking at a car wreck and somebody came, uh, you know, a minute before the car wreck or just as the car wreck, see, they come at different time frames, there's going to be different perceptions and views and uh, witnesses are going to leave out some testimony and have additional testimony, but the core of the testimony is going to match up. That's what we have in the Gospels. And so we need all four to uh, get a, you know, an overall picture of all the things that happened during that day. I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. But first, I want to read to you uh, John chapter 20, and then we'll pray. Here's the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2 Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple uh, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, uh, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who came to the tomb first went in also. Uh, And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Well, Lord, we do. We come here this morning thankful and grateful and humbled by your love and mercy and grace towards us. Lord, we were sinners, and you came and died for us. And you didn't stay in the grave. You rose again. You came to life, or back to life, or you came to life and rose again and ascended into heaven, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father where you make um, intercession for us. What a blessing, Lord. So we come here with grateful hearts and thank you for all you've accomplished. And today, Lord, as we read your word, we're praying that your word would accomplish what it sets out to do, to save sinners, Lord, and to bring them back to the Father, to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you uh, a little bit of a timeline of all the events. See, as I mentioned in my uh, opening there, uh, the order of events must be gleaned from all the, the, uh, uh, the Gospels. And if you uh, take one, you're not going to get all of the events, but that's okay, as I indicated. In Halley's Bible commentary, they give a an order of events uh, based on the scriptures as follows. It's a good one to study and to think about and to meditate upon. Here goes. Let me give you some of the things that happened on the morning in which Jesus uh, rose again and his tomb was empty. It says this, At the first break of dawn, two or more groups of women from the places where they were staying in Jerusalem or Bethany, probably a mile or two distant, start going towards the tomb. It's probably about this time that Jesus is emerging from the tomb, accompanied by angels who roll away the stone and neatly fold the shroud. The guards, meantime, are frightened and dazed. They flee to tell the priests who had placed them there. And about sunrise, as the women approach the tomb, Mary Magdalene, ahead of her group, seeing the tomb empty, but not seeing the angel, nor hearing his announcement that Jesus has risen in John 20, 13, and 15, turns and runs to tell Peter and John. The other, women come, the other women come closer. They see and they hear the angels, and they hurry away uh, by another route to tell the main group of disciples. And by this time, Peter and John reach the tomb and go in. They see the empty shroud, and they leave, John believing... Peter wondering. Mary Magdalene, meantime, uh, following hard after Peter and John, returns to the tomb and remains alone weeping. Then she sees the angels 
and Jesus himself appears to her. Shortly thereafter, Jesus appears to the other women as they are on their way to tell the disciples, or as having told the disciples, they are returning to the tomb. This all probably happened in an hour's time or so. Now, in addition to this morning uh, that Jesus rose again at the break of dawn, and this, uh, what I've read to you, this summary of what I've read to you, we know this, that there were several, several post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ uh, to his disciples and others. I'm going to read them to you in order, or uh, the best order that uh, I know how. It's this. I've already given you this one. Mary Magdalene, we read about it. That was in the early morning. And then to the other women, uh, again, in the early morning. But maybe you'd uh, forgotten this. You find this in Mark and Luke. Two disciples he appeared to on the way to Emmaus. And then, sometime later that day, in Luke 24, we're told that he appeared to Peter, personally, to Peter. That night, with Thomas absent, in Mark and Luke and John, we know that Jesus appeared to the eleven, the eleven disciples. And then a week later, with Thomas present, he appeared again to the eleven in John 20, 36 through 31. Later on, up in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, in John chapter 21, he appeared to seven of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And then, in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, he appeared uh, to 11. And then some people possibly believe it might have been at this time that he appeared to the 500 that's referred to in 1 Corinthians. But nevertheless, he appeared to 11, and then at some point to 500 people. That's a lot of people. He also appeared to James, his brother, that was in 1 Corinthians 15.7. And then we know that he made his final appearance in Ascension. You see that in Mark, in Luke, and also in the first chapter of the book of Acts. But later, don't forget this one, Jesus made a special appearance to the Apostle Paul. You find that in Acts chapter 9. And so we're asking the question this week as we learn the story of the resurrection. Again, you have to put all four Gospels together to come away with all of the different various events that happened on that morning. But we're asking the question, why did Jesus come? Why did he come to the earth? Why was it? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? What, what is it in God's economy, or why is it that God would do this? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is step back for a minute. And just take the biggest picture or the, uh, uh, the biggest view that we can of the Bible. What is the Bible doing? What is God doing in the Bible? What, if you read the Bible, do you come away with? Well, one way you can summarize the entire Bible is this. The Bible is, or um, what's contained in the Bible, is the story of God's sure attempt to get men and women, boys and girls, into the family of God, make them Christ-like, and live with them forever. That really is the Bible. 
We see uh, at the beginning of the Bible, don't we? At the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve. They're walking and they're talking with God. They're, what are they doing? They're communing with God. And what do we actually see in Revelation 21, verse 3? We see that at the end of time, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And it says that God's going to dwell with his people. What is God after? God is after our hearts, communion with us. The Bible tells us that we only love God because he first loved us. So the story of the Bible is God's attempt to get men and women, boys and girls, into the family of God, make them Christ-like, and dwell with them forever. That's the big picture of the Bible. But something cataclysmic happened right in chapter 3. Men rebelled against God. And in chapter 4, we see how devious and dark and cataclysmic this rebellion, sin, is. How do we know? What do we see? We see immediately after the rebellion, or uh, close thereafter, we see in the story of the Bible a brother murdering another brother. Sin is devastating. We talked about it last week. We talked about the problem of sin. The Bible tells us that each one of us, all of us, are sinners. And yet, we don't, here in America especially, see ourselves as sinners. We don't really see ourselves as sinners. I say that because, uh, first of all, when somebody shared the gospel with me, that was very difficult for me to uh, take in, that I was a sinner. But if you read the Bible, the Bible is clear that all of us are sinners. In fact, you go to people and you share the gospel and we talk about the scriptures that say that all of us are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned in Romans and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 143 says no man is righteous before God. Psalm 14 says, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. I find that uh, most people uh, believe like this. I might even have to use a picture. When you ask people whether, uh, uh, what they're like, are they good or are they bad, most people say, ah, I don't know, and they actually use the scale movements with their hands. I don't know. I mean, I'm better than some, but maybe not as bad as most. A lot of people in America feel just like the famous actress, actress Bridget Bardot felt. She said this, they may call me a sinner, but I am at peace with myself. The problem is the Bible says that we're sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Jeremiah, as we discussed on Good Friday, our, Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. Who can know them? I challenge us. Who can say that they've never broken a command of God? Who, who could ever say that they've never broken a command of God? Could, could you say that maybe uh, you've never murdered? Yes, but have you hated, Jesus said, then you've committed murder. Who has, could say they've not, never committed adultery? Yes, Jesus said, but if you've lusted, you've committed uh, uh, adultery. And so, what, how would we define sin? We talked about that last week. 
Sin is failing to meet or conform to God's moral law or perfect standard as set forth in the Old Testament law or as written in the hearts of our conscience, Romans says. Failing to meet or measure up to God's standard, that's sin in all of our acts, in all of our attitudes, and in our nature. In, any, in all of our acts, our attitudes, our nature, have we ever failed to meet or to conform to God's sin? James tells us that if we've failed in one point, if we've kept them all but failed in one point, we've failed in all. And so sin, it separates us from God. We talked about that. This uh, failing to meet uh, up to God's standard uh, separates us from God, and this isn't the interesting point, or um, maybe interesting might not be the word, but this is a key point. Not only does sin separate us from God, the penalty for being a sinner or committing sin is death, spiritual separation from God. The Bible tells us that, and sin always does this. It separates us from God, whether that's spiritual death or even if we're a, 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 a believer in Jesus Christ and we've come into a place of uh, submitting our lives to God, we can, uh, uh, as we go down the pathways of sin, we can kill off things in our life. Like, for instance, even if we're saved by grace and uh, live a life uh, 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 unto the Lord, but we've committed sin maybe in our family or against our family. We can really hurt and devastate a family, right? Sin separates. Isaiah 59 tells us this, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Sin separates us from God, and the penalty for that sin is death. It also, as I talked about earlier, enslaves us. That's what sin does. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We get into things. Uh, I often think of sin like flypaper. When we do it, it sticks to us and we can't get it off. And we have this nature that we are sinners. The Bible tells us that. And as I mentioned and talked about on Good Friday, sin damages our relationships. We hold grudges. People uh, uh, don't say they're sorry. There's no forgiveness. It separates. It always separates. And we, we uh, said last time when we answered the question, why did Jesus come? We said in his death, what did he do? The first part, what did he do? He saved us from our sins. We saw it in several places. We saw in the Bible that that was his mission. His mission was to save us from our sins. In Matthew 1, by the way, when the angel appears to Joseph, Jesus' father, he says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. And then in John 1, when his cousin sees him, in the first part of the book of John, John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul sums it up perfectly when he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus again said this in Mark 2, speaking on this issue. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, but to sinners to repentance. 
So we see the purpose of Jesus' life, his mission. What is it? To save sinners. And so we examined what did his death accomplish? Well, we know these things. Reading the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3. What did his death accomplish? Well, his death accomplished a dying for our sins. He was the one who was to shed blood for our sins. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus, on the last night in which he lived, he took the cup and he said these words, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, what for? For the remission of sins. It was all for this. Have you ever thought about this? When you're celebrating that great Christmas time, you've got the little manger scene up here and the cute little baby and everything uh, going on in the manger scene. Have you ever thought about this? That little baby, Jesus, he came, he was born to die. So what did he do? What did he do in his death? Well, 1 Peter 2.24, a beautiful scripture, says he bore our sin on the tree. He bore in himself the sin that we might, listen to this, that we might have the ability to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, we were slaves to sin. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans, in 1 Peter 2, we're slaves to righteousness. We're inclined now to write things by faith. So what does Jesus' death accomplish? Well, he bore our sin so that we might live or die to sin and live to righteousness. His death also was a propitiation for our sins. We talked about that last time. He bore all of the wrath and all of the guilt and all of the outpouring of God, uh, uh, God's wrath, the guilt and all the outpouring of God's wrath, and God poured out all of that on Jesus at the cross. That's a propitiation. He atoned for our sins. You see that in 1 John 2 2. Here's another thing that his death accomplished He justified us. He, uh, God is now free because of the atonement and uh, uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath against the sin of the world to now consider us who are in Christ Jesus not guilty, just as if we never sinned. That's justified, and you see it in Romans 5, 9, and 18. It also tells us there that he saved us from wrath. Oh, yes. We've been saved from the wrath of God. The Bible says that those who are outside of Christ are children of wrath. Why would the Bible say that? Because if they died in their sins and counted on their own righteousness, which doesn't measure up to God's perfect standard, then the wrath of God will be poured out on them. and They will be eternally separated from God. But in Christ, how beautiful is this? We're justified, declared not guilty, and saved from that wrath by the blood of the Son. What else does Jesus' death on the cross accomplish for us? You could read it in uh, uh, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.20, and elsewhere. It reconciles us to the Father. 
it brings us back to the Father. Remember what this, what's the uh, overall theme of the Bible? The overall theme of the Bible is, is that we have to, uh, it's God's pursuit to get men and women into the family of God, which means we're outside of the family of God, outside of Christ. But here we have the perfect high priest, the spotless lamb, both man and God, fully man, fully God, the only one who possibly could take the hand of man and the hand of God and bring us together by his sacrifice. That's reconciling us back to God, the Father. And in Colossians 1.20, it says, we're now at peace with God. Oh my. We're now at peace with God. Colossians 2.4 says, the death of Christ canceled our sin debt. It was nailed to the cross. In Hebrews 2.14, another thing that Jesus' death did, it rendered the devil powerless. Him, the enemy, who has the power of death. He, let me say that again. Uh, the enemy now, the devil, the enemy of our souls, is rendered powerless at, with respect to the worst thing that ever faces man, death. And we'll talk about that for a minute. But the worst thing that the enemy could ever hurl at us, death, is just an open door to being with the Lord for the Christian. Well, what else did Jesus' death do? Well, it fulfilled prophecy. You know this in Isaiah 53. It's very famous at this time of the year. Surely he has borne our griefs. This was written 800 years prior to the time of Christ. It says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. The death of Jesus Christ accomplished all of that for us and so much more. By the way, uh, just so you know, the chief need of man, what is it? It's the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you, you read the Psalms, and uh, I think Psalm 38 you could read, where uh, David was just so heavy and racked with guilt over the sins that he committed. And he acknowledges in Psalm 51 and other places after he had had an affair with one of his top uh, uh, commanding, our, uh, uh, commanding generals' uh, wives, after he'd had an affair with Bathsheba, he, he has this, uh, in 38 there, he has this sense of heaviness over his guilt, and his heart is about ready to explode from the guilt. And he says in Psalm 51, after the Bathsheba incident, it's against you, Lord, I have sinned. And he recognized that sin was his uh, chief uh, need the forgiveness of sins was his chief chief need in life. It's interesting in the second chapter of Mark. You remember this story? A lot of people are uh, watching the Chosen now. They have this scene in the Chosen. There's some friends of a paralytic, and they want to get him to Jesus. 
And so they go to the house where Jesus is talking and teaching, and it's so crowded, so they go up on the roof, and basically they split the roof and lower him down in there. And I don't know if you remember this. I think it's in verse 5 of chapter 2. I know it's in verse, uh, verse two, or chapter 2 there. Jesus says something interesting to begin before he deals with the, paraly- uh, uh, the paralytic or the, 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 the uh, physical portion of the man. Do you know this? He says this. He says when they get him down there and he sees the faith of his friends, he said, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that before uh, healing a paralytic man? Because Jesus knew what the chief need of men and women, boys and girls is. It's the forgiveness of sin so that we can come back to the Father and live with him forever. And that's what this is all about. And so we have seen there part one what the death, uh, the death of Jesus has accomplished. But what about the resurrection? What part does the resurrection play in why Jesus came? Well, first of all, it does this. It means that all Christ claimed to be is true. Think about it. He said things like this. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said this, I and the Father are one. Several times he said, I am, or he called himself the great I am, which is the phrase used to describe who God was from Exodus 3. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed that he was the Son of God, making himself divine. Well, listen to this in Romans 1 verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the dead or the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that Christ is all he claimed to be. If he never rose from the dead, Paul tells us, then everything in the Christian life would be futile and and in vain. And yet, he did rise from the dead, meaning that Christ is all he claimed to be. You've heard this famous saying. I think it came, comes from C.S. Lewis. I know that Josh McDowell says it a lot in a lot of his lectures and talks. Jesus could be only one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true, then he is Lord. He's not lying, and he's not a lunatic. He is Lord. So, first of all, what does the res- part does the rec- resurrection play? Well, it means that Christ is all he claimed to be, and he claimed to be a lot. <laughs> he claimed to be are all in all. He claimed to be God himself here on earth. Here's another thing that the resurrection does for us or means for us. It's the receipt, like when you get a receipt at the store. It's the receipt, so to speak, indicating that the sacrifice that Jesus paid or himself, Jesus himself, the perfect sacrifice was actually accepted by God. Think of it. In Hebrews 10, 12, it says this, But this man, 
after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. One sacrifice for sins forever. We don't have to keep going back and making sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. He sat down. What happened after he did this? He sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he rested. In other words, tetelestai, one of the things that he said on the cross. It is finished. There's no more that needs to happen. This was perfection. The sacrifice was perfect. Uh, Remember, the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that death in our place. He is the receipt, so to speak, indicating the sacrifice was accepted by God. We see it also over in the 17th chapter of Acts. Paul finds himself in a really interesting situation. He's preaching to the Athenians in Greece, Athens, Greece, and they have uh, an unknown God. And so he uh, is taking what he knows under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ over in Athens. He says this at the end of his preaching, Acts 17, verse 29 through 31. Listen carefully. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Man, is Paul brilliant. He's here telling them why their idols and their gods are useless or vain. Anyway, he goes on in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, whom he has ordained. And here comes the last sentence. He has given assurance of this, or I'll put this in here, of all this, the entire sermon, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ to non-Jewish people. He says this, he has given assurance of this to all. How? By raising him from the dead. It's the proof that we all need. So, what part does the resurrection play and why Jesus came? Well, we, we see, saw his death and all that accomplished. And we see this. If Jesus really rose again, it means everything he claimed to be is true. He is who he says he is. He's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He's Lord. If Jesus' resurrection is true, and it is, it's the receipt, so to speak, indicating that the sacrifice was perfectly acceptable by God. You see, that's fantastic. It's more fantastic than we here in the West even know. Because a Jewish person, person under the law had to take sacrifices all the time to the temple or to the tabernacle and to slaughter animals and the substitution, the animal based on the things that I did, I would have to take and I would have to sacrifice him with the priests and let the blood drain out and watch the horrificness, if that's a word, of all that was going on to cover over my sins. And we just Uh, In those times, they had to just keep coming back and coming back. And here, it's saying that the sacrifice, once for all, was enough and good enough and perfect. And that's what we trust in. Well, what else does the resurrection do? Well, Jesus said this, if you ever thought of this, John 14, 6. He said that I am the way 
and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Other religions make no sense if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is the quote-unquote religion. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus himself. That's not an intolerant doctrine. That's the most loving and merciful doctrine I know, and we know. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave us one way. He didn't ha have us hope and guess over 50 ways or 75 ways or maybe we can get in or maybe we can't get in. No, Jesus said this, uh, and told us this, and the writers of the Bible tell us this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we have the Son and if he has us, we have eternal life. It's all based on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life all of us, many of us, are seeking such broken cisterns of the world, things that don't satisfy. We're confused and we're lost and we wonder if there's even a place for us in this world. And Jesus is telling you right here in John 14, yes, there is. In me, you have a way and you have real truth and you have ultimate life bubbling up inside you. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. Well, what else? Well, if Jesus Christ died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 7, as I alluded to earlier, tells us that he is uh, able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is making intercession. He's alive and he's participating and actively moving on our behalf in heaven. Romans 8, 34 says this, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And the intercession is this, Father, by my blood, Tim is accepted, or Insert your name there. You're accepted. The nails through my hands and through my feet and the blood. And I died and I rose again. And now I've taken the hand of God or I've taken the hand of man and I've taken your hand, Father. And I've brought you together. Now because of the intercession that I've made, we have access and can come boldly to the throne room of grace. To find mercy and grace. Oh my, Christ is our intercession. What a beautiful thing the, uh, that uh, the resurrection does for us. But then, here's another thing. And many of us here and there, we need to hear this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, it says this. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, we've gotten our new resurrected bodies. And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Here it is, the saying. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? I read you earlier that our enemy, one of his uh, 
um, weapons in his arsenal is death. And here, in 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful chapter, that whole chapter that you could go and study and meditate on, I commend you to that. Well, the ultimate thing, um, or one of the ultimate things that uh, uh, Christ accomplished through his resurrection, his resurrection, it's death was swallowed up in victory. So for the Christian, even if they die, maybe physically, well, not maybe, they, unless the Lord tarries, we will die physically, but we'll never die spiritually. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord, we go up. Our spirits go to be with the Lord. And when he comes back in the clouds for us, we received a glorified, or we receive a glorified, resurrected body. Death, where is your sting? It never is going to impact us. One famous Christian said, when you hear that I've died, don't believe it. I've never been more alive than when I've gone. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Folks, the Christian, what could man do to them? What could man do to us? We don't have to be afraid. We aren't afraid in this current environment. Oh, yes, we want to be cautious and do the right things and be good neighbors. We don't want to be uh, lackadaisical about the things that our uh, governments ask us to do. But we don't fear because... If we died here, we'd be present with Jesus. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so, uh, going hand in glove with that, we see also in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. I'll read it to you. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. How about this in John 14, 19? Jesus said this, could it be more plain? Because I live you also will live. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the Lord over life and death. He's the Lord of this. And this doctrine is saying that because Jesus was the first one to rise again, guess what? We're following him. We are going to receive glorified, resurrected bodies. We are going to live forever. And so we come and we ask ourselves, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? Why did he come? Well, he came to save sinners. How did he save sinners? He died and he rose again. He died and he rose again. And so he came so that we might live. And if you pan back out, live where, when? We'll live with him forever, Revelation tells us. He's going to dwell with us in the heavenly city that's going to come to earth. Wow. And even as I'm sitting here talking 
it, it through with you and teaching it to you, my heart is elevated. My, I'm, I'm soaring, S-O-A-R-I-N-G. And I hope you are too. Well, you don't have to be afraid of death. The Lord has provided us access to the Father. We can come boldly to him now. We don't have to even uh, be in any spe- special position or uh, in any special place. We can come boldly by, uh, in, in our cars, in our showers, in our homes, uh, in our churches, in our uh, country clubs, in our places of athletics or the places where we play music or whatever we do. We can come boldly because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us here today? Well, here's what it means. It means that the Lord paid it all so that his people, the people that he created, humans, could come back to him. They'd have a provision because God is holy and has holy standards And the Bible says that we've fallen short of those holy standards. And the penalty for falling short is spiritual death or separation. But, the Bible tells us, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die in our place. And when uh, Christ was on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he... Our our sins were imputed to him. And when we trust in in all that Jesus has for uh, for us, his death and resurrection, his sins were imputed to, uh, or our sins were imputed to him at the cross, Jesus poured out his, or God poured out his wrath on those sins. Now uh, God's wrath has been satisfied, atoned, So he's free to pour mercy and grace on us. And for those who count on all of that, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's righteousness is imputed to us. Romans 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So that we know by reading the Bible why everybody who's going to hell is going to hell. It's because they're going to count on their own righteousness. And we also know Why everybody who's going to heaven is going to heaven? Because they're going to count on the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You see it? And so the Bible goes on and tells us that if you'll believe these things, you'll believe them in your heart, you'll confess them with your mouth, you will be saved. So what's it take? It takes this. It takes repentance. It takes A person who says, I agree with all of that. That's truth. And I've been dead in my sins and trespasses and iniquities. And I couldn't free myself. And so I need a Savior that God provides, Jesus Christ. And so I want to walk towards God and have my life be changed and transformed from the inside out. First, by paying for my sin, and then as the Holy Spirit comes to live in my life, cleaning out the old and giving us new life. Wow. Well, if you want to do that, um, we want to pray with you right now. If you're just tired of just bumping along in life, you're not settled, you're not fulfilled, there's no joy. You're just getting by. 
Well, you want to pray this prayer with us as we close out here and we have the worship team come back up. You want to pray this prayer with us. So do me a favor. Bow your heads with me, would you please? Lord, we come here and uh, we admit we're sinners. Lord, we need a Savior. Lord, we know our hearts are deceptively wicked. Who can know them? Lord, we understand that we are to put our trust and faith in you, Lord. And then, as you come and live in our lives and give us new life, Lord, that you would walk with us and sanctify us and grow us. What is it all for, Lord? To live with you for eternity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And so I just say to you, if you've prayed that prayer, if that's something you've done here today, I would encourage you to contact contact us here. We're going to have the information scroll across the screen at the end. We'd love for you to email us or uh, to call us, uh, to give a, contact us in some way and let us know um, that you've surrendered your life to Christ. Or if you have questions or anything about uh, what we've talked about here tonight or today, then we ask that you would uh, uh, get a hold of us. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Enjoy your families today. In Jesus' name, amen.